0: In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that God has dealt severely with individuals among God's people who pose a danger of corrupting the congregation. For example, in Leviticus chapter 10, when Israel was gathered at Mount Sinai, the priests Nadab and Abihu took their censers "...and put fire in them, and laid incense on them, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord." Which He had not commanded them. It was an act of rebellion against God. It was an act of presumption. God had given very specific instructions uh, for, for who was to offer the incense, and what incense was to be offered, and at what time, and so forth. And the priests, Nadab and here, they rebelled against the regulations that God had put in place. And they offered strange fire before the Lord. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. For the Lord had said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. Another example, in the book of Deuteronomy, as uh, Moses uh, gives the law of God to the people in preparation to enter the promised land, the Lord gives the instruction to Israel in chapter 18, verse 20, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Such a prophet would corrupt The nation would corrupt God's people. And so the law required that a false prophet be executed. In Joshua 7, Israel has entered the promised land. God has given them victory at Jericho. But a man named Achan took things from Jericho that the Lord Lord had devoted to be destroyed. Which the Lord had forbidden the Israelites to take. Achan had rebelled against God. He had clearly violated the command of God. And the Lord instructed Israel to stone Achan and his family and then burn them along with the stolen items and all their possessions. Is it just in the Old Testament that God God has acted like this? No. In Acts chapter 5, after the believers Ananias and Sapphira lied to the apostles, which amounted to lying to God, they fell down and breathed their last. In Revelation chapter 2, Christ said to the church in Pergamum, in verses 14 through 16 of Revelation 2, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, repent, If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. But it wasn't just to the church in Pergamum that Christ gave such a warning. Also we see in the same chapter of Revelation, in verses 20-23, through a warning from Christ to the church in Thyatira. Where Christ says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel and I will give to each of you according to your works. God had even dealt severely with members of the Corinthian church before Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. He dealt severely with members who posed a danger of corrupting the congregation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29, we read, "...for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body..." eats and drinks judgment on himself. It's talking about the Lord's Supper and partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. God's people are His people, called by His name. And He calls His people to reflect Him. God's people represent Him. This is why in the examples that I gave, God dealt severely with rebellion in the midst of God's people. Why He dealt severely with false teaching in the midst of God's people. Why He dealt severely with sin in the midst of God's people. Because rebellion, false teaching, sin in the midst of God's people has the potential to corrupt the congregation. God's love is not a love that affirms us however we are. His love is a holy love that hates what defiles, that hates what corrupts, that hates what pollutes. His love has purpose to make His people holy. Living in a culture that equates love with affirming a person however they choose to be, whatever they choose to do, we need to be frequently reminded that God's love is a holy love. Because we are called to love Christ's church with a holy love that reflects God's holy love. We too are to hate what defiles. We too are to hate what corrupts. We too are to hate what pollutes. We too are to seek that the church would be holy in God's sight. And so we need to attentively listen to our text Today. And let this text of Scripture form our thinking and our living as Christ's Church. This passage continues the instruction that the Apostle Paul gave in the previous paragraph to remove from the church an unrepentant sinning member. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter five, verses six through eight, which I'll read to us now. So please stand in honor of the Word of God if you are able. And truth. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. The Corinthian church, uh, to which the Apostle writes, had a problem of following worldly wisdom. And the Apostle addressed this problem in different ways in the previous chapters. And now in this chapter, we see a result of following worldly wisdom. The church had failed to deal with the ongoing sin of an unrepentant member. Let's go back and see what the Apostle said about this in verses 1-5 through that we studied last week. Look at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We studied those instructions last week. How the church was to excommunicate uh, this member of the church uh, who was unrepentant and was continuing uh, in this sin. Now in our text, Paul continues to address this situation. The passage that we will look at this morning instructs us as a church in three ways so that we might deal properly with an unrepentant sinning member and might be the church that Christ redeemed us to be. This passage instructs us as a church to first know the danger that persistent sin poses for a church. To know the danger that persistent sin poses for a church. Look closely at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Boasting is connected to pride, which was rebuked back in verse 2. The apostle has spoken against boasting earlier in this epistle, in chapter 1, verses 28-31. He spoke against boasting in chapter 3, verse 21. And again he spoke against boasting in chapter 4, verse 7. And now he says, in this situation, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Not only does boasting in man offend God, it also blinds us to our problems, as it did the Corinthians. Paul here in verse 6 likens sin in the church To leaven in a lump of dough. The Corinthians are are acting as though they are oblivious to this truth, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is a truth that Paul indicates they should surely know by now. If they were mindful of it, they would have already excommunicated the incestuous member. Leaven was something that was used in making bread. A leaven was a little portion of the previous week's dough that was set aside to ferment. People who make sourdough bread today call it a starter. So if you make sourdough bread, you're familiar with this. After the leaven fermented for a week or so, it was added to bread dough to make that bread dough rise. It was used like we commonly use yeast in bread. The leaven would quickly spread through the whole lump of dough and make the whole lump to rise. Now in our text, Paul likens the corrupting nature of sin to the spreading nature of leaven. A little sin, if known but not repented of, will spread and corrupt through and through. A little sin, if known but allowed to remain will spread and corrupt through and through. This is true both individually and corporately as a local church. Individually, such sin will over time corrupt your conscience. Over time, it will harden your heart. Over time, it will wither your your communion with God. Over time, it will destroy the efficacy of the means of grace in your life and destroy your disposition to use the means of grace. Over time, it will impair your ministry. Corporately, such sin will over time deteriorate the church's sense of right and wrong, sap a church's love for Christ, and have a corrupting effect on the whole congregation. Paul asks rhetorically, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is why we must be quick to repent of known sin in our life. That that sin would not spread. This is why the church must must deal with sin in its midst. So that sin will not spread within the congregation. Will not corrupt the congregation. Though excommunication of an unrepentant sinning member is severe, we see here that the consequences of failing to excommunicate are much worse. For its well-being and survival, a local church must excommunicate unrepentant, sinning members. One unrepentant member's sin is like a serious infection in the body, but the church's failure to discipline is like a complete failure of the body's immune system. Now now the previous verse gave one reason why the church must discipline an unrepentant, sinning member. In verse 5, Paul said, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We saw in that verse that church discipline is to be carried out in love out of concern for the soul of the unrepentant sinning member. It's, church discipline is a rescue mission that that person would not continue in this very, down this very dangerous road, but that, that they would be brought to their senses they would be brought to repentance and then restored to, but by the church. But now here in verse 6, we see a second reason why church discipline is necessary. And that is because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sin that is allowed to continue, that is not repented of, will have a corrupting influence upon the whole. So rather than boasting, the church in Corinth should have been alarmed, just as any church that fails to discipline should be alarmed. You and I must know the great danger that persistent sin poses for a church. This passage also instructs us as a church to be the holy church that Christ's sacrifice has made us. To be the holy church that Christ sacrifice has made us. Look at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In this verse, Paul alludes to the instructions that the Lord gave Israel at the time of the first Passover. When Paul instructs the Corinthians here, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. We read those instructions in our scripture reading in Exodus chapter 12. Paul is likening the incestuous man in the Corinthian church to old leaven that must be removed. Now this instruction to remove the old leaven is parallel to the instructions found elsewhere in this chapter if you look at chapter or at verse 2b verse 2b let him who has done this be removed from among you look at verse 5a you are to deliver this man to satan and verse 13b purge the evil person from among you same instruction to excommunicate the unrepentant sinning member here in our text it's put as cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. To understand verse 7, you need to understand the background in Exodus chapter 12. So please turn back to Exodus 12. The Israelites have been living in Egypt. They have become slaves in Egypt. God had promised their forefathers that He would give them the land of Canaan. God had foretold that they would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. God has spoken to Moses at the burning bush. He has sent Moses to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh, Let my people go, that they may come and worship me. Pharaoh has said, No, I will not let these people go. And the Lord sent nine plagues of judgment. And the tenth and final plague is about to fall, by which the Lord will move Pharaoh to let his people go. In Exodus chapter 12, just before the first Passover, the Lord gave the Israelites instructions for the first Passover. And in verse 8, He instructed that they eat the lamb with unleavened bread. The night before they would exit Egypt, Uh, they were to eat the Passover lamb, they were to eat that with unleavened bread. He also gave them instructions for remembering annually the first Passover and the Exodus. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So those were the instructions. Every year they would have the Passover celebration, looking back at the first Passover. And that Passover celebration would begin seven days uh, in which the Israelites, at first they had to cleanse all the leaven out of their house um, and then they could only eat unleavened bread for those seven days. Now Paul alludes to this instruction in our text, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Why was Israel to remove all the leaven out of their houses? Well, look here in this chapter of Exodus at what happened in the Exodus in verse 39. Verse 39, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. If you're going to use leaven to make dough to rise... That leaven has to, to, to sit in that dough for a period of time, growing in that dough, spreading in that, that dough. The Israelites didn't have time to leaven their bread. After the Passover, uh, they were almost literally thrust out of the land, that they had to go in haste. They didn't have time to leaven the bread. So as soon as the blood from the Passover lamb was put on the doorways, and the angel of death passed over their homes, sparing the firstborn sons, Israel left Egypt. And when the Israelites each year would remember this great event, they were to cleanse the old leaven out of their homes, and prepare a new lump of unleavened dough. It pictured that at the first Passover, they were delivered from their old life in Egypt, in order to live a new life in the promised land. The leaven pictured their old life, the way of Egypt, the way of the world that they left behind when they were delivered. And Paul uses this as an analogy for what the local church must do when one of its members is in sin and will not repent. Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been Sacrificed, The Passover lamb pointed forward to Christ. Paul calls Christ our Passover lamb. The Passover lamb had to be without blemish. Here in Exodus 12, I want you to look at verse 5, at the instruction for the Passover lamb. Verse 5 in Exodus 12. "...your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats." It had to be without blemish of any kind. And the Passover lamb, after being selected, was sacrificed. Look at the next verse, verse 6. "...and you shall keep it, that is the lamb that has been selected." You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They were to take the blood of that lamb that had been sacrificed and put it around the doorway. Blood that has been shed represents death. The Bible says the life is in the blood, and so when the blood is shed, the shed blood signifies that death has occurred. The blood of the Lamb secured salvation from divine judgment. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The wages of sin is death. All of us deserve to die for our sin. But God provided salvation for Israel. There was this this plague of the death of the firstborn. At midnight, the Lord would go through the land of Egypt and He would strike the firstborn son in every household. But if the blood of the lamb, remember the blood signified the death, if the blood of the sacrificial lamb was over the doorway, the Lord would pass over that home and not put to death the firstborn son. And that's where the term Passover comes from, because the Lord passed over the homes that had the blood on the doorway. The blood of the Lamb secured salvation from divine judgment. Now Paul says Christ is our Passover Lamb. Like the Passover Lamb, Christ was without blemish. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the Holy One. He is the righteous One who was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Christ was without blemish. When He died, it was the righteous dying for the unrighteous, the godly dying for the ungodly. He was without blemish. And Christ gave Himself as a sacrifice upon the cross. Just as the Passover lambs were sacrificed, so Christ was sacrificed. He was sacrificed as the ultimate Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb. He gave Himself as a sacrifice. No one took His life from Him. He gave up His life as a sacrifice. He died as a sacrifice for our sins. Christ shed blood secured for us salvation from divine judgment. On the future day of judgment, we will be passed over because of Christ's blood blood shed for us. He died in our place. He was punished in our place. He was judged in our place. He died in our place as our substitute. The Passover lamb was killed as a substitute for the firstborn sons, and likewise Christ died as a substitute for us. Now Paul says, you can turn back to 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 To the church in Corinth You really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed You really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed After we heard the gospel of Christ and how Christ died for our sins, the Holy Spirit applied Christ's finished work to our soul and we believed. When Christ's finished work was applied to our soul, God saved us and made us holy. And we can therefore say that Christ's sacrifice has made us holy. As believers in Jesus Christ, Christ's sacrifice has made us holy individually. And therefore, we can say that Christ's sacrifice has made us as a church holy. Because our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. We who believe are like a new unleavened lump of dough. Or we have been cleansed and set apart from the leaven of sin. To be holy means to be set apart from sin unto God for His service. And when we first believed the gospel of Christ's death for our sins and His resurrection for our justification, we were made holy positionally by Christ's sacrifice. We read of this in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10. Hebrews 10.10 says, And by that will that is God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. To sanctify means to make holy. And believers are told that we have been, in the past, we were sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's when we first believed in Christ. We were sanctified. We were made holy. Through Christ's sacrifice, we who believe have been cleansed from the guilt of our sin. We have been freed from the power of sin. And we have been consecrated to God. That's what it means that we were made holy by Christ's sacrifice. As our text puts it in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. How so very wonderful it is to be cleansed from all your guilt before a holy God by Christ's sacrifice. How very wonderful it is to be freed from sin's dominion by Christ's blood so that sin no longer has power over you. So you're no longer a slave to sin. How so very wonderful it is to be set apart from sin unto God for His service by that sacrifice. It makes you a new person. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah said in verse 5, Woe is me, For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He had just been been given a vision of the Lord high and exalted on His throne, a vision of the holiness of God. He had heard the angels around the throne of God saying of God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah, having beheld the holiness of God, he says, Woe is me! I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Woe is me! He was pronouncing judgment upon Himself. God's holiness exposed His unholiness. God's holiness exposed His sin. And He understood He deserved the very judgment that He was about to pronounce upon Israel. And then we read in Isaiah 6, that one of the angels flew to Isaiah having in his hand a burning coal from the altar, so that the angel touched Isaiah's mouth and said in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And Isaiah then heard the Lord say in verse 8, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. And the Lord said, Go and say to this people, And then he gave Isaiah a message to proclaim on the Lord's behalf to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah's sin was atoned for. And his guilt was taken away. And then God called him to service. It is the same for the Christian. The Christian has been sanctified by Christ's sacrifice. The Christian has been made holy by Christ's sacrifice. Cleansed from the guilt of our sin. Freed from our sin. And called by the Lord into service. Called by the Lord to now live a life for His glory. The Christian has been made holy. He's been sanctified. This is what Paul has in mind. You already are unleavened. Because Christ, our our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. How blessed it is to know that Jesus Christ is your Passover lamb. And has paid for all your sin. How blessed it is to know that God will not count your sin against you. Because He counted your sin against your Passover lamb. Jesus Christ. How blessed it is to know that in His great grace, God has freed you from sin's power and set you apart to serve Him. This is the church's position before God because Christ is our Passover Lamb. Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17b, For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God's temple is holy And you are that temple. You are that holy temple. You were made holy when you believed in Jesus Christ. Indeed, Paul addressed this epistle in chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. A saint is a holy one. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is very important that the believer positionally is holy. This is a position that cannot be improved upon throughout the Christian life. It cannot be improved upon in the future. It's a perfect position of holiness before God. Now let's see the whole point the Apostle Paul makes in our text. Look again at 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This verse instructs to be what Christ's sacrifice has made you. Christ's sacrifice has made you an unleavened lump of dough, so cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new unleavened lump of dough. Christ's sacrifice has made you holy, so cleanse the sin out of your midst in order that you may be holy. Positionally, we are holy, so we are to be holy in all our conduct. And he says, you already are unleavened. He's talking about their position. When he says, cleanse out the leaven, he's talking about the conduct. We are to be holy in all our conduct which means removing sin from our lives personally. And as a church, removing sin from our midst by removing any member who persists in known sin and will not repent. Sin is part of our old life. Paul uses the word old here, the old leaven. Sin is part of our old life. Our life before we were saved. Sin is contrary to the new life that Christ has given us. And the church must cleanse out the old leaven that the church may be a new lump as the church really is unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. As a church, we are instructed here to be the holy church that Christ's sacrifice has made us. Positionally, we're holy. And so because we are holy, we're to cleanse out what is unholy. Thirdly, this passage also instructs us as a church to live out the gospel with sincerity and truth. To live out the gospel with sincerity and truth. And truth. Take a close look at verse 8. Verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is a further allusion to Exodus chapter 12, in which the Lord instructed that the annual Passover celebration was to begin that seven-day festival, or feast of unleavened bread. In Exodus 12, 15, we read the word, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. The feast of unleavened bread was a celebration of what the Lord did in bringing the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. Every year they would celebrate that for those seven days. Listen to the instructions in Exodus 12, starting in verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, "...for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel." Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. And to this very day, Jews observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I visited Steve Beiser just the other day, and we were talking about this passage, and he said that he grew up with Jewish friends. And in the families that his friends were a part of, those, family, those Jewish families... Uh, when it came to this part of the Jewish calendar, uh, they they made a whole big deal about cleaning the whole house, cleaning out any speck of, of leaven. The Jews still do that today. Now, Paul alludes to this festival in our text when he says, "...let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now notice the word therefore in verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the Passover. He's saying because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, therefore let us celebrate the festival in this way. Now he's not instructing us to observe the seven-day Jewish festival each year. But he's instructing Christians that our lives would now be an ongoing celebration of what God has done through Christ in saving us from sin unto a new life to be lived for God's glory. That the whole Christian life would be this celebration. The Apostle Paul says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. And note that word, malice. Uh, the a word in the original language, Greek, that it's translated from, uh, has a broader meaning than malice. Um, It it has a a general meaning of wickedness, or it can be used in this sense um, to speak of malice. Now, I I don't see any reason to take the word in the narrower sense of, of malice. Together, the two terms here, translated malice and evil, cover all forms of sin. I I, I think it would be more faithful to translate the the leaven of wickedness and evil. using the term in a very broad way. Paul says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, or of wickedness and evil. Paul says we are to celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The word sincerity here speaks of purity of motive. Truth speaks of behavior that is in accord with the truth of God's Word. Those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb are now to practice the truth. The truth is not just something that we are to believe. We are actually to practice the truth. To live our lives in conformity with the truth of God's Word. That's why John says in 1 John one six, If we say we have fellowship with Him... For we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Paul says, Let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Our text instructs us to celebrate the festival with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, that we are to continually celebrate the gospel by living a new life, marked by purity of heart and conformity to the word of truth. In other words, a life marked by a conformity to the truth that begins in the heart and is real and authentic. A conformity that will stand the test when the Lord Jesus brings to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, as Paul said he will do in chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth the unleavened bread of holiness that goes down to the depths of our being, not not a mere outward holiness. For the most part, the Jews who were released from Egypt and brought to Mount Sinai, for the most part, they didn't have an inward holiness. There was an outward with the ceremony, but not an inward. Paul says, let us celebrate the, pastor, the, the festival with the unleavened bread of sincerity, something that is in the heart. Purity of motive and with truth. Conformity to the truth of God's word. We're to celebrate what Christ has done as our Passover lamb by living a new life of holiness. That includes holiness at work. Being honest at work. Treating others at work as you would like to be treated. It includes living a new life of holiness at home. Husbands being a servant leader. Husbands leading their family in worship. Wives helping their husbands, submitting to their husbands' leadership. Parents raising their children in the Lord's training and admonition. Children obeying their parents, loving and serving the neighbors who live around us. We're to celebrate what Christ has done as our Passover lamb by living a new life of holiness, including when we are with friends or with family, humbly seeking the interests of others, being a witness for Christ to them. We're to live a new life of holiness when we are all alone, following the Spirit rather than the flesh, even though no human being is watching, setting our eyes and our mind on what is pure in God's sight, being self-controlled. We're to live a new life of holiness when we gather and we fellowship with our church, reflecting Christ to one another, seasoning our words with grace, edifying and encouraging one another in the things of the Lord, forgiving one another. What we see in our text is that Christ died for us not simply to give us passage to heaven, but to recreate us and to form us into His own image so that both individually and corporately we may reflect the character of God unto His glory. The only, only reasonable response to what Christ has done for us as our Passover lamb is to celebrate the festival with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The Corinthian church in many ways looked more like their surroundings than they did the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of 1 Corinthians says to such a church as those who know Christ as their Passover lamb, you cannot continue in this way. My friend, let me ask you, has the guilt of all your sin been washed away by the blood of Jesus? Have you been cleansed by His sacrifice? There's a lot of things that we may try to do to silence our guilt or to remove our guilt. There are a good number of people today who are in psychiatric wards whose fundamental problem is guilt. That guilt has persisted. That guilt has not been dealt with. Not in all cases, but in many cases. Some people try to ignore their guilt. Some people try to do good things to outweigh the bad things. Some people look to the saints, that they, the saint might get for them forgiveness from God. All sorts of things that people do about their guilt. Guilt is not just subjective. We do have a feeling of guilt because we have a conscience that God has given to us. And that conscience tells us that what we're doing is either right or it's wrong. And so we will feel guilty sometimes when we do what is wrong in God's sight, when we break God's law. But when I'm talking about guilt, I'm talking about more than a a feeling of guilt. I'm talking about a standing before God. Has your guilt been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Apart from Christ, we stand guilty before a holy God. God has given us His law. We've broken His law. Therefore, we are guilty before Him. Because He is holy and He is just, He must punish our sin. There's nothing that you can do to atone for your sin. There's nothing that you can do to remove your guilt. There's only one thing that can remove your guilt. And that is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of the Bible is the good news of what God has done to save sinners in sending His very own Son, the second person of the Trinity, who is very God of very God, one through whom all things were created. God the Father sent His Son into this world he humbled Himself, He became one of us through the virgin conception. He was born into our human race. Very God, a very God, yet He veiled His glory behind the form of a servant. He came not to sit upon a throne and have people bowing down before Him. He came in order to suffer. He came in order to lay down His life as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of His people. That was the mission that the Father gave to Him and that's the mission He carried out perfectly. The Lord Jesus Christ obeyed the Father perfectly. He fulfilled the law down to the most minute of details of the law. And then He voluntarily gave up His life in death upon the cross. He was executed as if he were a vile criminal. He was executed as if he were a vile traitor. And as he hung upon the cross, he was bearing the sins of his people. He was bearing the guilt of his people. I want you to go back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Thinking about Christ as our Passover lamb. Here's a prophecy of Christ's death that was given 700 years before Jesus went to the cross. Isaiah 53 Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. That is, our souls are healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth." By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days." That's why Jesus can be said to be our Passover lamb. He bore our sin. He bore our guilt. Jesus did not stay in the grave. As was prophesied in this chapter, He rose on the third day, He rose in victory. He showed Himself alive to His disciples over the course of 40 days. And then He ascended into heaven before the eyes of His disciples. He ascended to the right hand of the Father from where where He has poured out the Holy Spirit after having commissioned His apostles to proclaim the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. And so the gospel calls upon you to repent of your sin, to turn from your sin, to confess your sin to God, to forsake your sin To turn from your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in Him as your Lord. To believe in Him as your Savior. In order to follow Him the rest of your days. And the gospel promises forgiveness of sin. Cleansing from sin. A gift of righteousness to the one who does not work but believes and the one who justifies the ungodly. The gospel promises the removal of your guilt on the basis of Christ's shed blood. When God forgives you, He removes your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. He, casts, he hurls it into the depths of the sea. He says, I will remember your sin no more because my son Paid for your sin in full. I will remember your sin no more because the perfect Passover lamb was sacrificed in your behalf. And you are forgiven when you believe. And you are justified by God's grace, declared righteous. We are not righteous. We we have not done righteous things in God's sight. But when we believe in Christ by God's grace, He declares the believer righteous. He gives you a a, a perfect standing of righteousness before God. He makes you you right with Himself. It is a perfect standing before God that cannot be improved upon. He gives you eternal life. He gives you His Spirit. And His Spirit gives you a, a new heart, and His Spirit begins to transform your life so that you begin to be holy in your conduct as God has declared you in position to be holy. And the Holy Spirit is a down payment, a guarantee, that God will complete the good work that He's begun, that you will share in the inheritance in eternity. So my question is, has the guilt of all your sin been washed away by the blood of Jesus? Have you been cleansed by His sacrifice? If not, I urge you to come to Jesus Christ this morning in repentance of sin, to come to Him in faith. The Gospel promises that Christ will not turn away anyone who comes to Him. In fact, when we come to Him, we can know we've come to Him because of God's grace towards us. We've come to Him because God in His grace drew us. And if He drew us, He certainly will bring us to glory. For those of us who belong to Christ's Church, this passage instructs us to know the danger that persistence imposes for a church. It will corrupt. And this passage instructs us to be the holy church that Christ's sacrifice has made us. It instructs us to live out the gospel with sincerity and truth. Now this does not only pertain to excommunicating an unrepentant sinning member, but this is to affect our Christian lives continually. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, after studying this passage, purpose to be mindful that Christ is our Passover lamb whose sacrifice has made us holy. Remember this tonight when you go to bed, that Christ is your Passover lamb who has made you holy. Remember this tomorrow morning when you wake up, Christ is my Passover lamb who has made me holy. When we gather together as a church, remind ourselves, Christ is our Passover lamb who has made us holy. And purpose to be mindful that the Christian life is a festival to be celebrated with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There's a certain way that we are to live now that we've been saved. There's a certain way that we are to live now that we've been made holy. We are to live in a holy way. Which is our worship. It's the celebration of what God has done in saving us from our sins this is a celebration of what God has done in sending Christ to be our Passover lamb and then ask the Lord how can I contribute to our church being the holy church that Christ's sacrifice has made us so be mindful of Christ as our Passover lamb be mindful of our new position because he was sacrificed for us and to be asking the Lord, how can I contribute to our church being the holy church that Christ's sacrifice has made us? And how can I individually be the holy person Christ's sacrifice has made me? How can I be the holy person in practice that Christ's sacrifice has made me in position? May the Lord use this passage of Scripture that we have studied for His glory in each of our hearts and lives. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for sending Your very own Son, the Lord Jesus, to be our Passover Lamb. We praise You, Lord Jesus, as the perfect Lamb. A Lamb without spot, a Lamb without any blemish of any sort the Holy One, the Righteous One. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You offered up Your life and death upon that cross for us, that that, that we would be forgiven, that our guilt would be removed by Your blood, that we would be made clean in Your sight through Your death for us. Thank You, Lord Father, that You raised Your Son in victory. We thank you that when we believed, you made us holy, you sanctified us, you set us apart from sin unto yourself, freeing us from the power of sin that we might live a new life of service to you, a new life of worship to you, a new life unto your glory. Oh Lord, help us to celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Help us to to grow in living holy lives for Your glory that reflect the holy position You gave us through the cross when we believed. Use all of this for Your glory in our hearts and lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.